Holy Spirit, thank you for inspiring the Word of God and allowing it to be to us the revelation of God himself and of the gospel. And we pray this morning that we will see Jesus more clearly because we have seen him as Emmanuel, God with us. Would you now help us to think hard and have open ears and eyes and an open heart especially to receive the good seed of your word. And then when we leave today, Lord, fill us with yourself that we might remember it and apply it and live as the people of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to be back with you again. I bring you greetings from Orlando, uh, the city beautiful, University Presbyterian Church, where I'm an associate pastor. It's always good to see you, and it's great to be here to hear this fantastic music. Wasn't that a, a wonderful song? Thank you so much for that. If you were to come to my home and get to know my wife and me better, one thing we might do is pull out some of our photographs, you know, before the days of digital. We might pull out some of our scrapbooks and let you see the years, the memories, the children, all of the events of our lives that have been recorded in pictures. Uh, We might allow you to see some of the Christmases that we've celebrated over the years. We've been married 40 years now, have 11 grandchildren, four kids. It's amazing to see the time and how things have changed in those 40 years. But one thing that hasn't changed is these pictures that keep showing you smiling faces and Christmas trees and homes beautifully decorated and Lots and lots of presents under the tree. Happy people. Except one year, if I were to pull out that scrapbook and show you from 1980, the Christmas that my wife and I had, you wouldn't see smiling faces. uh, Because that was the year my wife had just had a miscarriage. We'd already had one child and hoped for a second But my wife had a miscarriage just a couple of weeks before Christmas. And so if you saw the pictures from that Christmas, you would see my wife lying on the sofa uh, with not smiles but frowns and tears in her eyes. It was a hard, hard Christmas. Fortunately, we did go on and have more children, but that was a very hard time. And there are people in the room who know exactly what that's like. You know, in a very real sense, all of us have experienced miscarriages of one kind or another. We've all experienced loss. You know, a lot of people are very sad still and quite upset about the presidential election. It wasn't the outcome that they were expecting. Maybe you're one of them. Some of you dread this time of year. Thanksgiving, Christmas, these are the lonely times for a lot of people because you still grieve the loss of loved ones who aren't here to celebrate this time with you. Some of you have a a prodigal child. You know, you prayed for that child, you had family devotions. You were faithful in 
public worship at church. You tried to lead by example, not by coercion, but it didn't work, seemingly. Your daughter is not walking with God today, or your son is not walking with God today. Others of you have lost your physical health. Perhaps you can't drive or travel or visit with people like you once did. We could keep talking about various forms of miscarriage, couldn't we? These things feel like death, the death of hope. Well, the people of God in the days of the prophet Isaiah felt pretty hopeless too. It was a dark time in the nation of Judah. We opened up in Isaiah chapter 7, and I realize we sort of dove right in without a lot of context. I'm going to help you with that. I'm going to show you a little bit more about what was going on in that time. But it was a very dark time for the people of God. In Isaiah 7, uh, we're in the mid to late 8th century B.C. Ahaz was the king, the king of Judah. Ahaz was not a good king as you'll soon find out. And what is more, Judah had recently been attacked by the combined armies of Israel and Syria. Israel, Syria, up in the north of Palestine. Not only that, but over 100,000 people of Judah had died in that battle. And 200,000 of their people had been taken away prisoner. Earlier in Isaiah chapter 7, it says that the heart of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Talk about broken dreams. These people were living it. The people of Judah were the covenant people of God. God was supposed to protect them and give them victory, not defeat. And Ahaz, Ahaz belonged to the line of David. The promised line. He was a descendant of the king of Israel, David, to whom God had promised a perpetual kingship and a perpetual throne. Yet here they were, the people of God, attacked by their enemies and feeling very far away from God. Later on, if you were to read over into chapter 8, Isaiah is going to say that God was, quote, hiding His face from the house of Jacob. Get into that a little bit, will you? It felt like death to the people of God, the death of hope. So what do you do when things miscarry? When those things you hoped for don't happen? Well, the text that we're looking at today says that you run to Jesus Christ, whose name is Emmanuel, which means God is with you. That's what you do. So I want to say three things about hope this morning. And the first thing I want to say to you is that there are many times in life when it is hard to hope. I suspect that many of you found that out already. There are many, many times in life when it's hard to hope. So what is hope anyway? Let's start there. Hope, uh, we define hope wrong most of the time. I think most of us think of hope as a synonym for wish or optimism, something like that. Like we might say, I hope I get a new iPhone for Christmas, or I hope that Clemson beats Ohio State in the Fiesta Bowl. They're going to do that, but we still hope (laughs) that they will do that. 
Uh, Sorry, Ohio State fans. But look, in the Bible, hope is a lot more than wishing and positive thinking and optimism and that sort of thing. Biblical hope is the happy anticipation of good from God. The happy anticipation of good from God. It's confident expectation of future grace and blessing. It's another way of saying it is it's a conviction. Hope is a conviction that God is sovereign and good and faithful no matter what. That's hope. But friends, that kind of hope is under assault in your life each and every day. Every day, we're confronted with the same question, will we trust God or not? Will we believe His love, His promises, the fact that He says He's going to be faithful in this situation or when life doesn't work out like we thought it should? Look at the situation that the people of Judah were in. And here I'm going to now give you a little bit more of their story. To find out what was going on, we have to look up the page in Isaiah 7 to verse 3. So I'm going to read you a portion of Isaiah 7 that's going to confuse you probably. It's really confusing. There are names in here that I can hardly pronounce. But stay with me. I'll explain it. But we have to get a little bit more of the context. So look up the page at verse 3. I'm going to read verses 3 through 9. In Isaiah 7, it says that the Lord said to Isaiah... Now, he was the prophet in Judah at this this time period, one of the prophets. The Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz. And I said that Ahaz is the king of Judah at this time. Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, that is to Ahaz, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. In other words, that's an insult. Don't be afraid of these two stumps, that is, at the fierce anger of Rezin. Rezin was the king of Syria in the north. Don't be afraid of his anger and the son of Ramalia. His name was Pekah, and he was the king of Israel, also to the north. Because Syria, with Ephraim, another name for Israel, and the son of Ramalia, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Now, if that was a bit complicated, I can summarize it with two words. Chill, Ahaz. Chill, Ahaz. Don't be afraid. Relax. 
God has it all under control. It's all part of His plan. Be patient, Ahaz. You'll see. Trust God. That's basically what the message from God through Isaiah was. Relax. I'm in control. Sounds easy, right? But it's so very hard to do. We like guarantees. We like things we can see. We don't like to put our faith in unseen promises. We like to see things right with our very eyes, don't we? But then look what happens in the passage that I read earlier. God gives Ahaz a guarantee. In verse 11, he says to Ahaz through Isaiah, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. In other words, God is saying to Ahaz, let me prove it to you. You want to see something? You want to see a guarantee? I'll give you a guarantee. Do you want me to rain manna down out of heaven like I did during the days of the wilderness wandering? Or would you prefer that I make the sun stand still like I did during the days of Joshua? Or Ahaz, would you like me to do what I did with Noah? Put a rainbow in the sky and say, look at that, there's a sign. Come on, Ahaz, I'm willing to do something tangible, God is saying, to prove that you can trust me. God is being very gracious here, isn't he, to to Ahaz. He knows that Ahaz's faith is weak. So he backs up his promise with what we might call a blank check. It's, It's almost like this. It's almost like God hands Ahaz an Aladdin's lamp and says, come on, make a wish. I'd kind of like that, wouldn't you? Make a wish, Ahaz. What do you want? Well, look at what Ahaz says in verse 12. He puts on his very pious face and he says, I will not put the Lord to the test. That's a very pious thing to say, is it not? Perhaps Ahaz is thinking of a Bible verse. See, he knows his Bible pretty well. He's thinking of Deuteronomy 6, 16 that says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But listen, it's one thing to test God and quite another for God to say, test me. See, God is the one inviting Ahaz to ask for a sign. So it's unbelief and sheer pride for Ahaz not to do what God is inviting him to do. So he says in verse 12, no, Lord, I will not ask. Truth be told, Ahaz didn't want to trust God in the first place. Because from the beginning of his reign as king of Judah, Ahaz's heart was not right with God. Now you may not know that just based on Isaiah 7, but if you were to go back, you might want to write down in your margin 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28. You can read there about Ahaz. And if you were to read back in 2 Chronicles 28, you would read these words. Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals and made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and, get this, burned his sons as an offering. That's King Ahaz. Ahaz was an idolater. And instead of receiving God's grace and trusting in His promise... According to 2 Kings chapter 16, what Ahaz did when Israel and Syria 
came down to attack them, he sent to Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, this message. I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. See, instead of turning to the king, capital K, for help, Ahaz turned to a human king, Tiglath-Pileser III of Assyria. But unfortunately, if you read on in chapter 7 and 8 of Isaiah, you'd find out that instead of helping Judah, Assyria wreaked havoc upon Judah for many, many years to come. So, what does this reveal about us? See, when you read the Bible, it's not that you're just reading stories of things that happened thousands of years ago. You're reading a book that is meant to be a mirror. When you read the Bible, you should say, what's this revealing about me? What we find out from this story is that we're more like King Ahaz than we might like to think. We often put our hope in something or someone other than God. I said before that it's sometimes hard in life to find hope. What we do is instead put our hope and our trust in people or things other than God. When we're suffering, when people disappoint us, when difficulties come our way, when dreams die, what do we sometimes do? We check out our options. One option would be to pray and to be patient and to keep loving God and loving our neighbor and trust that God knows what He's doing. But what if God doesn't come through? What if God is not trustworthy, we think back here in the back of our minds. It's nice to have other options. What are those other options? Well, I thought of at least four And I gave them all words that start with the letter P so you'd remember it better. One option that we often turn to is panic. Panic, that's a great option, isn't it? When we panic, we can get real busy and make all kinds of impulsive decisions that end up being stupid decisions that hurt us and other people. That's a great option. Another option would be paralysis. That's a great option too, isn't it? We just freeze up and get overwhelmed with anxiety. That does a lot of good. And then a third option is people. People like Tiglath-Pileser, the third of Assyria. We turn to people when we don't know what to do. Surely somebody can come to our rescue. And if all those things fail, we turn to our painkillers. What's your painkiller? What is it that softens the grief, the loss, the miscarriage for you. Maybe it's alcohol or marijuana or watching a lot of television or pornography or spending money or binge eating or playing video games or work. What's your painkiller? We've got lots of them. All these things are our Assyrias, you might say. Things that are powerful and strong that appear to be able to deliver us from pain. Things that take our minds off of our troubles. But I bet you found out a long time ago that none of those options really works. 
They only bring shame and hurt and disappointment into our lives. Like Ahaz, though, we know how to act pious on the outside. We know the pious thing to say, I will not put the Lord to the test, he said. We know how to put on our religious face and say religious words. We can get real busy at church. But when it comes to trusting in God's love, really resting in His sovereign knowledge and goodness, believing that God is gracious and is in control of everything that's happening around us, even the bad things, instead of that, we're practical atheists. We trust in our own cleverness, our own plans, our own idols, or one of those other P options that I mentioned, rather than in the Lord who loves us and who gave Himself for us. So what should we do? What should we do when we miscarry? Well, when we are suffering, we need to trust in Christ. Trust in Christ. He is our one and only hope. Today, trust in Jesus. Rest in Him. That's what we should do. In verse 14, God makes an amazing promise to King Ahaz. And not just to Ahaz, but to all of us. And this verse is very famous at this time of year. You, your ears probably perked up when I read verse 14. It says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. Now, I should say at this point that through the ages, theologians and scholars have debated and wrestled with questions about that verse. Questions like, who is this virgin that's being talked about here? And who is Emmanuel? There are several different theories and several different variations of those theories and too many of them to go into here. But let me just summarize it and say basically, here are some of the things people say about verse 14. Some people say that the word virgin really doesn't mean virgin. It means young woman. And she might be Isaiah's wife. Emmanuel, therefore, would either be she or Jashub, who was mentioned earlier there in verse 3, or his other son, Meher Shalhal Hashbaz, who is mentioned in chapter 8. And I thought my grandchildren had weird names. Uh, Some people say that. Or other scholars would venture that the virgin is not... Uh, Isaiah's wife, but Ahaz's wife, the queen, Ahaz's wife. And therefore the son might be Hezekiah, who would come later. Or it's, say some, it's some other woman that Isaiah is talking about and a son who would soon be born to that woman. Let me just cut to the chase and tell you that I'm confident that this woman mentioned in verse 14 is really a virgin. And she is really going to have a son who will be called Emmanuel. And that name, of course, means God is with us. The question is, what did that sign mean to Ahaz? And what does it mean for you and me today? So first, what did it mean to Ahaz? This promise about a virgin having a child named Emmanuel. For Ahaz, God with us was good news and bad news. The good news is in verse 16. 
which says that Israel and Syria, those two enemies in the north, would shortly be destroyed. Now that was good news. And the fact is, in 732 B.C., Tiglath-Pileser destroyed Damascus and broke the Syrian-Israelite confederacy. We know that from the history books. The bad news, however, is in verse 17. Because of the pride of Judah and the unbelief of King Ahaz, Judah herself would be invaded and impoverished by Assyria. It says in verse 17, The Lord will bring upon you, speaking to Ahaz here, The Lord will bring upon you and your people such days as have not come since the day Ephraim departed from Judah, namely the king of Assyria. See, Assyria, the hoped-for deliverer, would actually turn out to be the curse upon Judah. So for Ahaz, Emmanuel meant both blessing and judgment. So what about us? What is this sign of the virgin having a child named Emmanuel mean for you and for me? The same thing. Blessing and judgment. Let me tell you a story. You may have heard it before. Once upon a time, there was a devout young Jewish man who fell in love with a poor teenage girl. He asked her to marry him and she said yes. But a couple of months later, the girl came to him and said to him that she was pregnant. He knew he wasn't the father, so naturally he was about to assume that she'd cheated on him and he was going to call off the wedding. When an angel appeared to this man and said, Joseph, don't be ashamed to take Mary as your wife, for the baby she carries in her womb is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Yeshua, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You've heard that story, right? It's found in the book of Matthew, chapter 1, 18 through 21. And Matthew goes on to say, this took place to fulfill what the Lord spoke by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel means good news and bad news for us, just like it did for King Ahaz. First, the bad news. Jesus, the son of the Virgin Mary, when he grew up to be an adult, would die for sins not his own. He would be betrayed by his friends and arrested and tried on false charges, condemned by a Roman governor and crucified on a hill outside Jerusalem, though he had done nothing but love everyone he met. And the good news? Jesus, the son of Mary, when he grew up to be an adult, would die for sins, not his own. He would be betrayed and arrested and tried and condemned and crucified on a Roman cross, though he'd done nothing but love everyone he met. See, Emmanuel means both judgment and blessing. Judgment upon Jesus for our sins and the blessings of grace and forgiveness for all who trust in him. Friend, do you want a guarantee of God's love? 
That's it. This is it. Advent. God has come to you in the person of Jesus Christ. There is no better proof of God's love than that. He may not remove, listen, he may not remove the pain that you're carrying, but his presence will lighten that load of pain and give you hope. He will be with you to help you, to strengthen your faith, to provide for you, even in the darkest times of life. I remember I told you earlier about some incident in my life. I'll tell you about another one. I remember the day that my son David was taken by ambulance to Florida Hospital. When I got the call, I broke every uh, traffic law in the books getting to the ER where I found David in agonizing pain. I've never seen my, any of my kids hurting as bad as he was hurting in that moment. It was awful. I sat next to his bed and held his hand while he cried and screamed. Here is this college-age young man of mine screaming because of what he was suffering. I wanted so bad to make that pain go away. But I did what I could do. I held his hand. And I just kept looking into his eyes. I'll never forget this. He kept looking at me as he cried and winced in pain. And I sat there and sat there and stayed there suffering with my boy. Later on, he told me what a comfort it was that I was just there. Jesus... Our Emmanuel feels about you the way I felt about my son in that moment, only a lot more so. He suffers with you. And while you might wish that suffering would end, if you'll look to him, if you'll trust in him, he'll give you grace to endure. He will. One day it will end. One day it will go away. You'll be delivered finally and eternally from sin and shame and sorrow. And Emmanuel will be with you forever in the new heavens and the new earth. In the meantime, keep singing that song we sang earlier today. Oh, come. Oh, come, Emmanuel. And ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice! Rejoice! Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Amen? Let's pray.